podcast is a production of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center. It is made possible by grant funding from the Academy of Teaching Scholars at the University of Oklahoma. The views expressed in this podcast are based on the participants' research, but at times may represent their expert opinion only. On today's podcast, we have Dr. Katherine Moxley. I've known Dr. Moxley since our days in medical school and residency together, and I can say she's a superb GYN oncologist here at the University of Oklahoma. Um, welcome, Dr. Moxley. Thank you, Dr. Smith. It's good to be here this morning. On today's podcast, I'd like to discuss sepsis in the obstetric population. If you've been listening to this series, you might think, sepsis, this is supposed to be a podcast series on basic OBGYN topics, and you want to talk about sepsis. I would argue that this is becoming, unfortunately, more common in our L&D wards and represents a significant source of maternal morbidity and mortality. Dr. Moxley has a large volume of knowledge and experience in this subject, and I'm really excited we get to hear from her today. Well, thank you again. As you know, uh, maternal mortality rates are actually rising in the United States. Of these deaths, close to 15% are a result of sepsis. And postpartum infections complicate up to 12% of pregnancies, including 5% of vaginal and 7% of cesarean deliveries. The most common postpartum infection is endometritis, but women can also experience wound infection, cellulitis of the perineum, mastitis, respiratory complications, retained products of conception, and urinary tract infections. Risk factors for such postpartum infections and sepsis include a history of cesarean delivery, premature rupture of membranes, frequent cervical examinations, internal fetal monitoring, pre-existing pelvic infections, including bacterial vaginosis, diabetes, nutritional status, and obesity. When we think about obesepsis, can you kind of start by covering the most common pathogens and how these are acquired? Or uh, you talked about risk factors for infection, but, but risk factors for the different po- uh, pathogens that we see in our sepsis patients. Of course. So the most common pathogens are actually going to be those that are native to the GI and genitourinary tract. So these would include gram-negative rods, particularly E. coli coming from the gut, as well as gram-positive cocci, including both staphylococcal and streptococcal species, um, which would include group B as well as group A strep. Additionally, anaerobes can be present, and in the case of metritis, the infection is frequently polymicrobial, incorporating multiple different strains of bacteria. Most of these pathogens colonize the GI tract or the vagina, and therefore risk factors for metritis, such as prolonged rupture of membranes, known colonization with group B strep, operative vaginal delivery, and urgent or emergent cesarean delivery make good sense. In the setting of an infection such as group A streptococcus, um, additional risk factors would include individuals who have exposure to other individuals with non-invasive group A strep infections such as streptococcal pharyngitis. Um, Also, we sometimes see an increase in this in the winter and spring seasons because up to 20% of children can be carriers of this bacteria and those are the streptococcal um, throat infection seasons. Interesting. Next, can you review the criteria we should be using in the obstetric population to decide if our patient has sepsis or Sears criteria? So in 2012, there was an initiative um, put out by the CDC looking at redefining sepsis, and it was called the Surviving Sepsis Campaign. They are 
updating that uh, at the present time. However, um, with the definition of sepsis, they have actually decreased the number of uh, risk factors that you need in order to uh, meet sepsis criteria. They've also defined a criteria known as SIRS, or Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome, whereby if a patient has a fever, tachycardia, hypotension, a leukocytosis, um, and any signs or symptoms of infection, they meet uh, SIRS criteria. With regard to the obstetric population, they are looking at specific uh, OB-based criteria. However, these are not outlined by the CDC um, in the Surviving Sepsis Campaign. And so knowing what is considered sepsis in an obstetric population at your individual institution is often going to be um, important so that you don't miss a diagnosis and document uh, inappropriately. Really, applying these same sepsis criteria to obstetric, to obstetric patients honestly would potentially make you overdiagnose sepsis or SIRS. However, um, overdiagnosis in this situation, in my opinion, is much better than underdiagnosis. And so I like to stick to the surviving sepsis criteria um, at this point in time. Okay. So we um, are going to look for a patient that has hypotension, tachycardia, leukocytosis, fever, the things that you mentioned, those are the patients that would meet the SIRS criteria if we think that they're infected in some way. And then we're going to be looking for end organ damage, elevated lactic acid, those things for... Right, so those would define um, severe sepsis or septic shock. And those symptoms are, or those signs are typically laboratory signs and or failure to respond to initial management. So elevated lactate, leukopenia or hypothermia would actually be much more ominous signs and would be associated with a much more severe form of sepsis as opposed to just sepsis or systemic inflammatory response syndrome. Excellent. That's really important for us to review. Okay, so when we find ourselves, Dr. Moxley, faced with an obstetric patient who meets sepsis criteria or SIRS criteria, take us through what we should do first. So the initial step in management is going to be aggressive resuscitation. You need to examine the patient. Ideally, they'll have an IV in place. You should start with a 30 cc per kilogram bolus. Um, for most of our patients, because of their weight of 50 to 70 kilograms, that's going to be a 1,500 to 2,000 cc bolus. So I frequently see that patients are under-resuscitated because we simply order a 500 or 1,000 cc bolus. It's also imperative that these fluids be given as rapidly as possible. So this is not something that is administered over an hour. This is something that is squeezed in over the course of a few minutes. And the goal of this is to correct sepsis-induced hypoperfusion. We use hypotension and tachycardia as surrogates for that. Um, in addition, while that bolus is going in, a complete physical exam looking at the potential sources should be undertaken. Also, 
just looking at your patient and seeing how sick they actually are is very important. If you have a patient who's not mentating well, who has cool extremities, that's not a patient that you're going to wait and see if your bolus works on before you would transfer to a higher level of care, such as an intensive care unit. If the patient's talking, limbs and extremities are warm, they have good pulses, then proceed with your examination focused on areas that the patient would be at risk for having a, a source of infection, whether that's the breast, the perineum in the case of a vaginal delivery with a laceration or an episiotomy, the abdomen in the case of a cesarean section, obviously the uterus um, in, the, in the case of any delivery um, within the last 72 hours, um, and then less common sources like the lungs. Um, the urinary tract is very common, but not a frequent source of, of uh, fever and hypotension unless there's a py pyelonephritis. So flank tenderness would also be something to look for. And then certainly kind of our enigmas like deep venous thrombus, swollen extremities, other things that might be a possibility based upon the patient's history um, and comorbid medical conditions, but not something commonly assessed for in every patient. Perfect. And you talked about this physical exam and workup. You know, we think about getting blood cultures, urine culture, but when we're thinking about the uterus, right, that's going to be our source because a lot of these patients are going to get sections, prolonged labor. How are we going to evaluate our uterus as the source of infection? So <clears throat> I think starting with a bimanual examination is critical. If the patient has uterine tenderness, then it is reasonable to consider, especially in the setting of purulent discharge coming from the uterus or very high temperature, very toxic looking patient um, performing an endometrial aspirate. This is something that has not routinely been performed in the past. However, if you have a very toxic-looking patient, you're going to be looking for pathogens that are fast-acting, such as group A strep, um, or even some of your clostridium species, and they'll show up on an aspirate very quickly and, and help with determining how to manage the patient appropriately. That being said, in addition to fluid management and aggressive resuscitation, I think it goes without saying that um, it can't be, um, it's also important to remember that you have to get antibiotics and culture started very quickly. So the recommendations um, from our Centers for Disease Control are that cultures be obtained from the blood and any other suspicious source within 45 minutes of presentation, and that antibiotics should be hanging within an hour. Obviously, you want to start broad, um, and in an obstetric population, a combination of Gent and Clinda with the addition of ampicillin if you're worried about a gram-positive, particularly um, a group A strep case, or something broad-spectrum such as Zosin would also be um, reasonable uh, antibiotics to initiate. I think one thing that is important that sometimes we fail to think about as um, clinicians is that these recommendations and guidelines are things that we are actually measured on. And so it is imperative that the resuscitation be both aggressive and swift. Excellent. So, you know, you went over kind of my next topic, which is, you know, what do we do? So you talked about aggressive volume resuscitation and that, you know, you want to give the fluid 
fast, two liters, fast, 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 and then transfer to a higher level of care, and then that broad-spectrum antibiotic within the first hour. Talk to me about source control. Um, That's something that we hear you guys say, we talk about in these patients, but go over what that means. Okay. So the concept of source control is actually removing the source of infection. And for most postpartum or peripartum infections, this is an unnecessary step. However, in the setting of an aggressive skin or subcutaneous infection or infection of the perineal wound, any kind of surgical wound, it's a concept that we're actually very familiar with. You open the wound, you debride back to healthy tissue, and then you allow healing after evacuation of the source of the infection. Um, Where it is becoming more necessary is in the management of aggressive streptococcal postpartum infections. And source control in this setting is actually a very old concept um, that you can find a lot of, of older literature about in the GYN topics. Um, because women used to present with group A streptococcal infections as, as um, a result of septic abortion. Um, ultimately, when you have a very aggressive necrotizing infection, typically brought on by a streptococcal uh, species like group A strep or um, clostridial species like Clostridium perfringens, um, this would include an exploratory laparotomy, evaluation of the uterus, and hysterectomy with bilateral salpingo-oophorectomy at the time of, of, uh, of surgery. The reason for removal of the adnexa is that bacterial spread is very difficult to assess, and the concept of cutting back to healthy tissue in the abdomen is very complicated. Um, given the close proximity as well as the, the tubes acting as a conduit through which um, you know, infected effluent can, can be extruded into the abdominal and pelvic cavities, it, it seems very reasonable in the setting of a very toxic um, young patient to remove the entire source. And so when you employ this approach, it is associated with a 30 to 40% decrease in sepsis-related mortality. Um, And while there are significant side effects from having a hysterectomy as well as a BSO at the time of of delivery, it's also imperative that this patient survive to take care of her newborn. So fantastic. Good. Um, Okay, tell us ideally who would be involved from a multi-specialty or multi-physician care group for these patients with sepsis and severe sepsis. Okay, well I think that involvement of ancillary services is likely to be both practice and provider dependent. Certainly for patients who require intensive care for either cardiovascular or pulmonary collapse, they should be transferred to an intensive care unit where both the nursing and physician staff have the appropriate support they need to care for the patient. Uh, In this case, involvement of a pulmonary critical care specialist and their team of support staff is prudent to assist with intubation, mechanical ventilation, central venous catheter and arterial line placement, initiation of blood pressure support medications, things that as... OBGYNs we don't do on a regular basis. 
if surgical management of the source is felt to be indicated based upon your endometrial aspirate or the toxic toxicity of the patient, involvement of a surgeon or surgical team with experience in source control when available should be considered. Remember that the surgical management of these patients may include wound debridement, hysterectomy, salpingo-oophorectomy, abdominal washout, and either primary or delayed closure depending on the overall status of the patient. So you need to have a surgeon who is comfortable with all of those procedures. This may therefore require a multidisciplinary surgical team including a gynecologist as well as a a general or trauma surgeon who's comfortable with abdominal washouts and packing. Also, for highly virulent or complicated microbial infections, discussions with the infectious disease uh, team at your hospital regarding appropriate choice of antimicrobials, the duration of treatment, and other options that you might not have considered is also warranted. I think the most important thing to remember is that you should never feel uncomfortable asking for help because the input and assistance received from subspecialty colleagues can be invaluable. Sometimes they're able to take a higher look at a situation um, than we can caring for the patient. However, as the obstetrician, it's also important that you never forget that you're the expert in peripartum care. And so while the input of surgical subspecialists and medical subspecialists is valuable, it doesn't replace your expertise as well as your understanding of the alterations in physiology that are normal with pregnancy in the purpurum um, that they may not understand and, and feel that a patient is actually improved or, or normal compared to what you know is an altered state for, for pregnancy or the postpartum period. Dr. Moxley, thank you so much for coming with us to be on the podcast today. Um, as you know, this is such critical and important information for each of our listeners. Um, and will come in handy one day for them. So before there's anything, before we go, is there anything else you think our audience would benefit from hearing about um, purpural sepsis? Only that I've been involved in a number of these cases and in the setting of sepsis and particularly septic shock with these young, vital patients, it's, it's critical to remember that every minute is crucial. So be vigilant, be aggressive, no one is ever going to fault you for responding too quickly. Um, and if you don't, the consequences can be dire. Excellent. Well, that's all the time we have for today on the podcast. If you have any questions or would like a transcript of today's podcast, please contact me at katie-smith at ouhsc.edu. That's k-a-t-i-e-s-m-i-t-h at ouhsc.edu. Thanks for joining us today. Please stay tuned for further podcasts from the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Oklahoma. <laughs>